It's historic, and some of these people have the most comprehensive interviews of their lives and careers. Many of these people, you've never heard them speak before or reveal the kinds of things they reveal. There's a real comfort factor with me and them on the stage. People always say it's like you're in somebody's living room watching Fern and her friend have a conversation. So there's a trust factor. And at this point, I've done it almost over 50 interviews. So, you know, the first 19, some of those designers, Norma, Calvin, Donna, Betsy, Diane from Furstenberg, Tom Ford, Michael Kors, Bruce Weber, Holly Mellon, Mark Jacobs, Oscar, Vera, Isaac. Often called the godmother of fashion, Fern Malice did not earn her prestigious title in one day. As one of the most active and admired women in the fashion industry, Malice has made a long-lasting impact that has revolutionized fashion weeks across the globe. As the iconic creator of New York Fashion Week, Malice has lived and breathed fashion, from interviewing top industry leaders and promoting new talent, to serving as the face of American Fashion Weeks both domestically and abroad. From her iconic 92nd Street Y Fashion Icon series to serving on the board of directors at the FIT Foundation and to her former VP position at IMG Fashion, Malice's long list of successful entrepreneurial and professional endeavors is ongoing. Whew, I'm out of breath, y'all. In this week's conversation, fashion industry giant Fern Malice and I sit down and discuss her life, career, and her long-lasting impact on the fashion industry. If you haven't already, be sure to follow her on Instagram at Fern Malice and click the link in her bio to check out all of her iconic conversations on her YouTube channel. It's really great. I hope that you enjoy our conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Fashion Moment. I am thrilled to have the godmother of fashion with me, Fern Malice. Fern, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Kirsten. I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you so much. You know, I, I mean, you are a living icon, legend. I mean, there's just so much here, and I can't wait to dive in. I, I'm sure most of our listeners know who you are, but... There might be some that don't. So we're going to start. Oh, just Google me and just get on <laughs> I know, Just Google, just Google Fern. Okay, guys. So we're going to start at the beginning. Um, you were born and raised in Brooklyn, which I love. And, you know, what was it like growing up there, like back when you were young? It was like a different New York, I'm sure. Well, it certainly was a different Brooklyn. Mm. I mean, Brooklyn now is, you know, one of the hottest places on the planet. Yeah. You know, it's so chic and so cool and this so many new buildings and developments and cute neighborhoods. And my, my youngest niece, who's an artist, is living in Brooklyn, and she's moved around a few times there. Um, but when I grew up, it was, it, you know, it was nice suburbia. It was in a neighborhood called Mill Basin, which, oddly enough, I've watched on late-night television. When Jimmy Kimmel comes back and does some shows in New York sometimes from Brooklyn, uh-huh. he talks about having grown up and born in Mill Basin in the exact neighborhood. And went to the same grammar school that I went to. And oh then my his goodness. family moved to Las Vegas. 
So, I mean, I tuned in one night and he had a sweatshirt on that said Mill Basin. And I went, what? Because that's very remote. But it was, you know, a nice neighborhood, you know, one house after another with a little front yard and a nice backyard. And, you know, everybody was friends and, um, you know, and everybody talked to each other. It was suburbia, you know, it was in the 50s, you know, mm, the world was she. fine and it was good. And we played in the street, and, you know, played punch ball and stoop ball and all those things and didn't have to worry about you know, anything, you know, the doors were open to all the houses. My mother's brother, my aunt and uncle lived across the street. And oh, wow. Daughters. And we were three daughters in our house. And so we were back and forth and there were two other friends. We made kind of like a, you know, a, a, like almost like a rectangle of all of us who were friends, you know, and, wow. you know, no cell phones, no anything, you know, you didn't have to worry about when you got home. You know, mm. your parents didn't worry about you because, you know, we were all good kids. Um, wow. Brooklyn was was wonderful. You know, and it was ethnically mixed. You know, we were in like, you know, Jewish area. There were a lot of Syrians up the block and people from, you know, a lot of other places. And it was. And then no I complaints. It. I love it. There but must be something my parents in the water passed, there. <laughs> Great. <my> parents, <laughs> parents passed away and we sold the house. A lot of Russians have moved in there and and some Chinese, and they've taken these same lots and have built these humongous houses that go literally right to the end of the property in the front. It's, it's, it's really gross. Wow. Wow. I, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna look it up. Yeah. I mean, New York is constantly changing and evolving. It's truly amazing. So, you know, fashion is in your DNA, Fern. It's in your DNA. Your father worked, you know, in the garment district, you know, as a salesman for women's scarves and accessories. I loved hearing your stories about the scarves and your experience with them. That was actually one of our first conversations when I was at IMG. I was like, tell me everything. And I just found it so fascinating. You know, what were some of the key lessons that you learned from your father? Well, you know, my father and his two brothers were all in the garment district. One was in textiles, one was in sportswear. My dad was, as you say, in scarves and accessories, you know, and they had lunch together every Tuesday. They all had lunch together in one of the most delicious Italian restaurants that I wish was still there, you know, or other restaurants in the area that we used to go to with him. Um, But I loved going to work with my dad whenever there was a chance, whenever there was a day off from school or a holiday or something. You know, it was way before Gloria Stein and Coin take your daughters to work days. So when I went to work with him, he was he was a salesman. So he was charming. He was funny. You know, they all told great jokes. Um, and my father was one of the smartest men I know. I mean, he could beat anybody in any trivia game or any board game. You know, he was well versed on everything from all the, what, whatever bird was in the sky to worldwide religions to travel to um you know art i mean he was really uh, quite knowledgeable but you know and as a salesman i would watch him work with these the buyers who were predominantly women from the stores or the fashion directors he had most of the big new york stores um where the other salesmen had a lot of stuff around the country but he made it clear he didn't want to travel because he didn't want to miss the birthdays and the graduations wow. and all the things to be on the road. So luckily he had the best stores 
you know, and I used, we learned to, he would always take me to lunch with whoever he was working with. Wow. And so, you know, as a little girl, you'd like watch what people order to eat and you learn to eat in nice restaurants, you know, and they would have Bloody Marys and I'd have a Virgin Mary, you know. I love it. Or I'd have, you know, my favorite drink growing up was tomato, tomato and clam juice. Oh my goodness. And, um, you know, so you, I just learned how the course of their conversations happened. And, and I saw that this industry was co- good to women and that this was a good place for women to work and become, you know, something and have important jobs. Uh, you know, and also I used to love going behind the scenes there to the art department. All these women drew, painted every single pattern of every scarf. So when you see a gorgeous really tight paisley they would paint every little piece of it oh, and if it was in the red and pink range and then there was a blue and then there was a green range and they had a million little bottles of ink and pens and inks and nobody had computers then you know no. there were no cad programs they all put in a paisley and now oh, change that color so i mean i was just mesmerized by the artistic work that they were doing and that always wow. Um, was important to me. Absolutely. So I learned how to, I basically learned how to grow up and be in business and be in the industry, you know, and I learned just a lot about the stores and what the whole business of fashion was because, you know, he'd bring his women's wear dailies home every day and I would read them as a kid growing up, you know, when I was like in high school. Ah, amazing. I wish, I wish I I had access to that when I was younger. That that's definitely like top of the line training ground. That is such an awesome experience, but you know, you wanted to go to FIT or Parsons and your dad said, Nope, Nope. Like what was the reasoning behind that? Um, Well, he felt like I should get a, a really strong liberal arts education and that if fashion was in my blood, that would happen anyway. Wow. And, and he was so, right. Um, and <laughs> he was right. Um, and, you know, Parsons was kind of out of the question because it was expensive. Yeah. You know, um, my sister, Stephanie, my older sister is an architect now, but she studied interior design and she was going to Pratt. Oh, wow. And, which was in Brooklyn. But even because we lived in Brooklyn and Pratt was in Brooklyn, he, he allowed her to live on campus so that she didn't feel like she was missing out on that experience of a college. Because it's very different when you go to a place and there's a campus as opposed to commuting and going home every day to your home. And, you know, so so that I thought was very enlightening, enlightened of him. Um, so when it was time for me to go to college, you know, I originally thought I'd go to Brooklyn College to save family money. And, you know, and he said, no, you've got to get out of town because you or your mother have to move out of the house and it's easier to get you out. You know, it was that age of, you know, you and your mother fighting about everything. Yeah. Um, so we explored the SUNY system, which is the State Universities of New York, which is an extraordinary Absolutely. You know, education system in the state. And so I went to Buffalo, which was the biggest city of schools, as Binghamton or Oneonta or, you know, some of the smaller places. And the University of Buffalo was where I went. And when I went there, it was... It was a very pivotal time in our history. The Vietnam War was happening. 
there was lots of protests happening all the time, lots of activism. And the University of Buffalo, believe it or not, was almost considered like the Berkeley of the East at that time. We had wow. some of the most extraordinary professors and political leaders and activists there. It was a, it was a real hotbed. Wow. I remember writing letters home and my mother said she was keeping these letters that said, watch out, the world's going to change. This war is going to change everything. And, you know, this, you know, just scared about what was happening. And it was an extraordinary experience. I, I got a, a fine arts degree, a BFA, but also an academic education. And I became very friendly with the folks in the theater department and the arts department. So I was friends with the actor Ron Silver, who unfortunately passed wow. away. Wow. Sunshine. I had a boyfriend there, Robbie Lieberman, who's hey, Robbie. Um, lives in LA and he's a, a TV producer and movie producer. Wow. Um, Peter Regat, the actor, was in the class. My what? friend Sunshine, who was a producer for years at Extra. You know, wow. so it was a good time and I loved doing all of that. Amazing. So you were at the University of Buffalo getting your study on. And then you join what was it, Mademoiselle, their mm -hmm. college board? Yep. And what happened then? Well, I joined the board because I mean, in, in the summers in New York, I joined one of them at Abraham and Strauss, ANS, which had a big training program for young people. And you know, I was interested in all of that stuff. So Mademoiselle, in my era, was beyond doubt the most important woman's magazine. It was for the smart women, intelligent women. Uh, it had, it was the magazine that published Truman Capote. And, and um, you know, I, I'm, I'm now going to forget all the names, but every, every major writer got their start at Mademoiselle magazine. The photographer that I interviewed, Arthur Elgore, started at Mademoiselle Magazine. The editors there are were amazing. They went on to become senior editors at the New York Times. One of them went on to launch Elle Magazine. Another one went on to be the fashion director, you know, at other publications. They were all, it was a, an amazing magazine. So the college board was an outreach that they did to college students. If you read the magazine fill out this application and form and they accept you. And, and then they'd send you packages every, oh. you know, periodically with, which was really, we were a focus group for it. Yeah. So, you know, do you like this? Will you use this product? Do you do that? You know, and again, there was no computers. There was nothing like no. that. So we'd fill out these things, mail them back. And then there was the next level. If you wanted to escalate into the, from the college board to become a guest editor, which was their very preeminent initiative and program that lasted for about 40 years, I think. Wow. And it was started by this woman, Betsy Talbot Blackwell, who was the editor-in-chief then, back in the, in the uh, 40s. And, and I'm actually right now reading the book, The Barbizon, The Barbizon, about the Barbizon Hotel. Yeah. And it's, it's unbelievable because it talks all about the creation of the Mademoiselle guest editors, the, the Mademoiselle and the Barbizon were a very strong connection. Because hmm. all of, I stayed there for a month, like all the girls who won, won why won. And, you know, and the guest editors through history were people like Joan Didion, Lynn Cher, Beth, um, Sylvia Plath, Allie McGraw, Betsy Johnson. Oh you know, so I, 
in order to become a guest editor, you'd have to submit something else to the magazine, like a, whether it's fashion drawings or garments or poetry or literature or photography, all the different things the magazine featured. And I did a, a graphic thing because I was doing the fine arts, you know, and it was like a direct mail piece that Mademoiselle would send out to, you know, to get you to subscribe. Wow. And wow. then I got a call one day from the magazine um, that said, it must have been a call. I'm trying to think of how else I would have gotten her a letter that said, you know, there's an editor who's going to be in, in your area. You know, would you meet her and show her around the campus? And I did that. I didn't realize that that was, I was being interviewed. Ah. Seen, you know, who I am and what I'm mm-hmm. like. And the next thing I know, I got a telegram, which dates me. A telegram? First. That's when you got telegram. <laughs> it was in my mailbox at school, and I just screamed that I was selected. Uh-huh. And every guest editor probably never went to their graduation or any of those things because, you know, you had to um, you had to be in New York for the month of June uh-huh. to guest edit their August issue, which was the college issue. And wow. so I was the guest art editor. And... It was a, it's a remarkable um, program. Today it would be a reality TV show. <laughs> 20 girls killing each other for the, for the job or the boyfriend because they had parties. We went to discos. We went to, you know, companies, beauty companies, fashion companies to, you know, talk to them and meet people. We went to Israel for a week every year. Love they that. one trip to another place. And my group, when I was a guest editor, there were four of us. There were 20 of us, but there were groups, four or five of us that went all to different places to meet an artist, to meet an author. We went to meet a designer, and the designer we went to meet and interview was Stan Herman. And he was, you know, the designer, Mr. Mort at the time, which was a high line. So, you know, things come very full circle in your life that you never expect. Never. I mean, what a story. And, you know, from there, you graduate. And then you, what, what, what's next? What, well, what I, did you do? Well, I graduated and then I, well, I, I graduated without physically being there at school, but then I was a guest editor for the month of June. And then I um, took the rest of the summer and went with a college friend to Europe, which was what we did in those years. You had your, your rail pass and a piece yeah. of heavy luggage that you regretted and eliminated <laughs> as you went, went around because you couldn't carry the bags up the four flights of stairs in every little hotel you stayed at. And I, I spent a fabulous summer in Europe. And that was the first summer where you went to every church, every cathedral, every museum. Uh, of course. You really had to check it all out. And um, and then when I came home, my mother said, Mademoiselle Magazine has been calling. So I said, really? She said, they won. They offered me a job wow. in the college competitions department. And I was the only one of the 20 in my group that was offered a job. Wow. Um, and that was great. So I then was in the next, in the position to then, I'd be that person going to campuses to meet potential guest editors and to work on the college competitions area. And so I did that for a few years. And then um, one of the guest editors that I selected from the University of California in Santa Barbara was a young girl named Diane Smith. And Diane became the for years at Sports Illustrated, she was the swimsuit editor who would pick wow. all those girls in the swimsuits every year. Wow. You know, and, and, uh, it was, and I was traveling to all these college campuses while, you know, people were burning bras because of the war going on. 
So it was a funny time, but I then moved into merchandising and started to do all this in-store events all over the country that brought all the advertisers' messages to life. And that was a great deal of fun. And, um, you know, and that, that was a great experience. I mean, I'd go to the Alamo, you know, the stores in the Alamoana Shopping Center in Hawaii to stores in Toledo to, you know, Michigan to Florida, you know, and it's when I, every city had a really distinct department store that was of its mm. area, not, wow. not the way it is now because Macy's bought up almost everything. Yeah. Now it's Macy's in every town, but it was Higby's and Dillard's and Burdine's and, you know, Meyer and Grace, Meyer and Frank and, you know, all different stores everywhere. Wow. So that was a fabulous experience for me early on. You know, it almost seems like your eye for talent is intuitive. Was that something that you had to sort of build or did you kind of always have it? Yeah, I don't know how you build that. I think you kind of have it. I mean, I, you know, I could look at a resume or interview people and in less than five minutes, you could tell if that's going to work or they're going to, you know, yeah. rise to the occasion. And I remember, you know, uh, just in Christina's office, you know, all of the designer like packets and, you know, press kits and she would say, go through them. But I also know that you would, you know, read the magazines, tear sheets out, you know, new talent, whether they were in London or somewhere else, and just sort of have this ongoing idea. I oh, love supporting new talent and finding what was next. You know, and you know, and all those systems for setting up the fashion shows, all of that stuff, you know, I mean, we created it for the first time. Nobody we didn't know what we were doing. And just for me, it was common sense. Wow. Well, we'll we will get to that, but I'm gonna rewind a bit and go back to the studio fifty-four days. Now you've mentioned it in some of your interviews, and I was like, was Fern there? What was Fern there? So I have to ask. What was the first outfit that you wore to Studio 54 like, uh, you when know, it opened? I mean, that's a great question, and I wish I could remember, <laughs> but I don't have a clue. You well, know? I mean, that also makes sense, too, you know, because the parties were just well, amazing. You know, <laughs> well, the, the thing is that when I left Gimble, when I left Mademoiselle and I went to Gimble's East as a fashion director of the store, and then, you know, then eventually I started a, a public relations business. Oh, wow. With my was Fern Mallon's Public Relations. And I did it in my friends, Scott Bromley and Robin Jacobson's office. It was Bromley Jacobson. They were architects and interior designers. And they were really my BFFs. And I had a little desk in the corner. And I went into that business because everybody was asking me all the time, how do I get this done? Where do I get that? I'm going to have a party. Who do I use as a caterer? How do you get this thing printed? How do I get this blown up? Where do you get balloons? Where do you... You yeah. know, and you know, or you know, this editor, will you tell them about the new salon I just designed, you know, or somebody's house? How do I get? And so I said, you know, I could get paid for that information. <laughs> right. So I started a business and I started in their office. And at the time, or the year after, they were designing Studio 54. Wow. So that's how the studio connection happened. So Ian and Steve Rebell would be coming up to the office for meetings and it was like, wow, you know, this is really cool. But although we didn't know how cool it was going to be, you know, it yeah. was exciting, but, you know, not until that place opened, did you? Uh, 
the magic. He's amazing. And and I I would go with Scott, who is tall and handsome with white, you know, hair, which he's always had white hair. And and so, you know, you always got through the velvet robes. They always saw Scott and you know, pulled him in. You know, I don't know that I ever could have gotten in on my own in those days, you know, because I mean I didn't come dressed like a freak and I wasn't, <laughs> wasn't a famous player. Not but, covered in glitter, none of that. No, no. But, but Studio 54 is very much like Ryan Park to me. You know, you had to have been mm. experience it. You know, it was really such a special place. It was the first time. Well, first of all, the music was beyond fantastic. The scale and size of the place prior to that, discotheques were tiny clubs with a dance floor that was like the size of a, you know, a dining room. You know, we everybody is very crowded. Studio opened that up to this massive size space in this old theater, you know, with the balconies. And, you know, it was a time where people were doing a lot of drugs in those days and, you know, like, you know, the Halston stories and all of that. But it was the first place you ever saw gay people and straight people dancing next to each other, you know, and trans people and people on roller skates and people that were half naked and you know, in the most crazy outfits next to the most glamorous New York socialite in black tie, you know, and then all the Hollywood and the celebrities and the artists and, you know, the Halston, Liza, you know, Bianca Jagger, um, Andy Warhol. I mean, you you name it, you know, and and they weren't in a private room. They were right there on the banquettes. Might have been a rope in front of some of them to just keep the crazies from bothering them, but it was... They were there and, you know, they were ambassadors and politicians dancing next to, next to, you know, fashion freaks. You know, it was really remarkable. Wow. That's amazing to just even be able to witness that point in history. Um, You mentioned Halston, you know, the new Netflix series Halston has been all the rage, you know, fashion lovers and people who had no idea who he was are completely just enamored with his story. Um, I'm curious just from, you know, the time that you were there, like what was Halston's legacy to American fashion and sort of what did he mean? Well, you know, I also live on a street in New York where on the corner was the Halston shop, which was the beautiful store with the big slanted windows. And um, that's where Max Mara is now on Madison Avenue. And um, I, I mean, Halston was the, the minimalist of all the designers. I mean, he was—he knew how to drape in a way that was remarkable, you know, and his patterns look like artwork. Uh, you know, I, there's a documentary that came out the year before this Netflix series, and that shows a lot of those patterns hanging in the archives at FIT's museum, you know, which is a really good, good program to watch. But he freed women in a way with the simplest, simplest garments and the sequins and the, you know, little tunics over a pair of, you know, elasticized waist pants or, you know, drawstrings and and his ultra suede dress, which was revolutionary. And the kind of tunics and caftans he did. He, I mean, he was, and he did great sweaters and knits. I mean, I used to have a lot of his sweaters. They were nice and long and the sleeves were always longer and they I love cut really nice and narrow. And, um, I, you know, he really was, he, he 
he changed the whole perception of fashion and dressing up and um and i i think that was the fault with that program you don't get enough of what his real contribution to fashion was you know it was much more about the sensationalism of the drugs and the sex yeah but he he was an extraordinary designer apparently not the nicest person a lot of people didn't <laughs> like him but well, you, you know, know fashion people, um, you know, mixed bag territory. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what was uh, and you know that you know the house that they show in there that he lived in the Paul Rudolph town. Yes, was quite extraordinary. You know, Tom <gasps> Ford bought that house and owns that now. Did he? I did not know that. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to look that up and put it in the show notes. Um, you know, just fast forwarding just a little bit. Um, what? exactly was the seventh on sale like what was that initiative it was an initiative created by the cfda with vogue magazine to raise money for aids um and it was at a time in the well the the first big seventh on sale was 1991 uh 1990 in the november I mean, I was very involved in my life at that time with DIFA, which was the Design Industries Foundation Fighting AIDS, which was started in like 83 when AIDS was starting to become something that we had to address. And in the interior design and architecture community, there were people dying left and right. All my friends from Fire Island, all these interior designers, you know, we were going to memorial services, you know, three, four times a week. Um, and at the beginning, nobody knew what was going on. And thank God for people like Larry Kramer, who passed away, who focused, made people pay attention. We didn't have a government that paid attention. We had a president that wouldn't even mention it. You know, when you think of how many people, you know, were affected with COVID now and how quickly a vaccine came. I mean, it was very much like AIDS. I mean, it really was. And there's still not a cure, but there's drugs that now are keeping people alive for, you know, decades. But it was a horrifying time. And so DIFA was doing lots of events that we could do to raise money and to raise consciousness. You know, I mean, I, I proudly say when one of DIFA's first grants that we awarded was to a woman named Ganja Stone, who was working in a church basement, um, cooking meals to give to, give to people who were, um, you know, couldn't, couldn't cook for themselves and couldn't get out. And we get, got her the money to get a professional size refrigerator to work with. And she, she started God's Love We Deliver, oh, which is such an extraordinary organization now that, you know, a few years back, Michael Kors made a $10 million contribution to God's Love. You know, so that was our different history. And we kept, you know, we would slowly move more into the fashion universe to get fashion designers involved and the fashion community because they were now being they were now dying yeah you know and so we went to the cfda yeah. the president was carolyn rome at the time and we said can the fashion industry do something big there was one big event that calvin did at the armory at the javits center but nothing that really pulled the whole industry together and um you know and different was started before there was amfar you know, there was just, I guess, the gay men's health crisis was started to address the, the ha problems happening to their community. Um, and so, you know, they listened to us talk about the kind of things we could do. Yeah. At DIFA, we did an ultimate warehouse sale, which I organized. 
when I was working at the design center in Long Island City, Queens. And, you know, and that was almost like a forerunner of Seventh on Sale. We rented booths, the different furniture and textile companies and sold everything at like wholesale prices and people bought tickets to come and shop. And, you know, we had a trucking booth there to, you know, truck things around. And it, it was an incredible event. And so CFDA said that they wanted to do it on their own, not with DIFA. And they, you know, they pulled together their triumvirate of Ralph, Donna, Calvin, you oh, know, and a and organized this, this event. And it was at the Armory on 26th Street and Lexington Avenue. It was four days. The first night was a gala dinner, um, which was in the center of the Armory with these white gauze panels way high from the ceiling. Robert Isabel, who was the designer person of the world, you know, designed the whole place. And I, I forget there was all sorts of celebrities and, you know, real, you know, people singing and performing and, you know, and then after dinner, the, you know, the, the fabric was raised and the armory was surrounded by, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 booths of each of the designers wares. And they would design in their own image, you know, so Ralph's looked like Ralph's, Tommy Hilfiger's looked like Tommy's. Isaac's was colorful, looked like his, taught all, you know, and they were all there selling their things at below wholesale prices. People would shop like there was no tomorrow. The lines at the checkouts were unbelievable. And that was the, you know, the first night. And then tickets were sold for the next, you know, three days wow. for two hour shopping sessions. So there were lines around the armory literally for an entire weekend of people waiting to get in and trying to get people out and raised, <laughs> right. you know, and there were big, huge tractor trailer vans on the street, which had more inventory so that it could keep replenishing in their wow. booth. You know, that kind of thing can't happen today because all these companies are public companies now and they never just let you, you know, just yeah. donate all of that stuff for, for nothing. And, um, they wound up at the end of the four-day weekend, you know, raising, um, netting and raising like $5 million, which was a wow. lot of money. And so there was a Vogue CFDA fund created with the New York Trust um, that worked with them to hold the money. But that event completely depleted the CFDA, you mm. know, and the office was a tiny office in 1412 Broadway. And the guy who was the director they didn't renew his contract. He was gone, Robert Raymond. Carolyn Rome resigned as president. She was like burnt out from it. And everybody thought the CFDA was an answering machine, you wow. know, and, and that's when they were looking for a new executive director. And I was reading those articles, you know, about it and women's wearing stuff. And, um, you know, and that one day I kind of said to, I think, Jeffrey Banks, who was a friend, you know, how do maybe I should throw my hat in the ring. Yes. You know, and I was working freelance for the couple of months with Loving and Weintraub PR firm, and they were doing PR for CFDA, you know, pro bono. And so they, you know, we said, what do I do? They all said, send your resume to Donna Karen, call Donna Karen. And I said, call Donna Karen. So then they got back to me and they said, there were two designers that were the search committee and it was Stan Herman and Monica wow. Tilly. And I said, 
Uh, I met Stan 20 years ago at, when I was at Mademoiselle. I sent in a resume. They called me immediately and said, how quickly can you get here? And they had already interviewed about 30 people and seen like 300 resumes. And I had all the kinds of experience they wanted. And that's how that all kind of came together. You know, I went in and I met Monica and Stan and I told him, I said, I met you, you know, 20 years ago. And he said, oh, right. I remember. Wow. And I said, no, you don't remember. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. So from that point, when you became the executive director, like when did the whole like, ah, we need a fashion week. We need to bring everyone together. When did that occur? No, that was not part of the agenda at all. I mean, it was wow. about raising money for AIDS. It was about um, elevating the imprimatur of fashion as an art and, you know, just the whole profile of the fashion industry. Yeah. But I was hired and selected, you know, after a huge board meeting with everybody you could wow. possibly name on my birthday on March 26th. And then I was off for two weeks, you know, to wow. organize my things before I started the job. And that's when there was the market week and fashion week. There were 50 fashion shows. There were 50 different locations. Nobody talked to each other. And Michael Kors had a show in an empty lofty space in, the, in Chelsea. And when he put the bass, music went on, which is, <laughs> as you know, very loud in the venue and things yes. shake and tremble. And the ceiling started to collapse and this plaster started coming down on the runway on the shoulders of Cindy, Linda, Naomi, uh, Claudia, all the one named supermodels of the day. And then plaster landed in the laps of Susie Menkes from the International. Oh, my Union, goodness. Gary Donovan from the New York Times, who wrote the next day that we live for fashion. We don't want to die for it <laughs> because nobody paid attention to the clothes. Everybody was looking for the emergency exits if it got worse. And that's when I said, I think my job description just changed. Yeah. And so it started a mission to organize, centralize, and modernize fashion week, you know, and look for locations and figure out how we could do something. And, you know, the first attempt we made was at the Maclow Hotel, which was now the Millennial Hotel on wow. 44th Street. And the venues weren't perfect, but it was in an attempt to see if more than three people could show in the same place because every yeah. designer wanted their own, of you know, course. environment, which to them was, you know, the world began and ended with them. They didn't care that they were uptown and the next show was in Soho or the next right. show was on the East side. And one was on the West side, you know, it was just completely inconvenient. And all the European press wasn't coming because they didn't even know how to access it or who was doing what. So that was an attempt. And then, we were able to, Stan's office was on the corner of Bryant Park. And so he was important in negotiating with Bryant Park for the space when the park was just still in the throes of being renovated from a really nasty, wow. ugly drug. Needle park, park, it was Needle called. <laughs> you know, and it's now one of the most beautiful urban renewals anywhere. Yeah. And we made a deal and created, you know, a company called Seventh on Sixth, which was named after Seventh on Sale. Wow. Ah. So we, and we were going to do a tennis thing. It was going to be Seventh on Serve. And we, you know, we had all these Seventh on ideas. But wow. Fashion Week became this entity, you know, let's see if we could do it. We had a million meetings with designers and producers and PR people. And I mean, it wasn't, it took a long time to, get everybody 
behind it and convinced. You wow. know, and the and the season before it really all kicked in, <clears throat> the CFDA sent me to Europe and I went to Paris and Milan and met with a lot of people there and came back with lots of R and D and said, you know, we have to make this happen. We have to sit down with the big brass, you know, and one on one meetings with Ralph Lauren and with Donna and with Calvin said, you know, you have to be part of this because we need, you're the leaders, you know, and, um, you know, and they all did, you know, for the first couple of years, they were all on board at the tents in Bryant Park, you know, and, and then that summer also I had, we had done a big fashion show in Central Park for the Democratic Convention, which dominated Bill Clinton as its candidate. And so that was the first time we got a tent in Central Park and had all the designers participate with a model and, and wow. an outfit. And so they all saw the potential of what this tent could look like. Yeah. And at the end of it, they were all on the lawn with me and they said, is this what you're talking about? And I said, exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. And so wow. it all came together and, you know, and, you know, it was a game changer. And uh, yes, this is history, you know. One of the most iconic events in American history, to be exact. Podcasts are awesome. And I know you love them too, or you wouldn't be here right now. But have you ever thought about starting your own? Don't worry, you don't have to be a techie, but you do need a bit of guidance so you don't make costly mistakes. My name is Sunny, and I've been podcasting for a long time. I've launched more than 15 profitable podcasts, and I'm the founder of the Independent Podcast Network. My online course, How to Launch Your Profitable Podcast in 30 Days, gives you the keys to the five P's of podcasting, which is everything you need to launch and grow a successful podcast. You get unlimited access to more than 35 videos and dozens of handouts. And when you purchase my course, you're also supporting this awesome podcast because they're getting 50% of the money when you use their special link. How cool is that? Let me help you get started with your podcast. Go to podcastsareawesome.com slash fashion. That's podcastsareawesome.com slash fashion. Now, the tents. Uh, I miss the tents at Bryan Park. I loved it so much. You Everybody. did such an amazing job with that. It was such an era. And you would come up with these amazing themes every season, which we love. Graphics on the front to the design inside to the graphics on the T-shirts and on the programs. Yeah, exactly. The little buttons. I know. that, that Those buttons, the voting one was one of my favorite tent fronts. Oh, uh, Ah, I loved it so much. So like, where did you get your inspiration for the themes and sort of like what the focus would be? What was happening around us in the world and in society and, you know, whether it was in illustrations or, you know, for a couple of years, once we decided we were going to move and the tents, you know, I mean, we did a whole front, which was luggage, you know. Yeah. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yes. And then the very last tent front we had was you know, all the quotes and from different people everywhere about fashion week in the tents, you know, when we, you know, way back when had the first season that IMG bought us from CFDA, we had Steven Sprouse do the graffiti, wow. which was camouflage front. And he had, you know, with the writing, it was the year that Mark Jacobs, you know, wrote on the 
the Louis Vuitton bags with yeah. all that, that, you know, loose handwriting, which people thought, oh my God, how, how could that be? And it yeah. was such a huge success that that was the beginning of many years of fooling around with the LVMH the Louis Vuitton logos. But we had Steven Sprouse do that. And it was the first season that Mercedes was a sponsor, mm. you know, and so and that also was the season of 9-11. So the tents were shut down very quickly. Wow. And that's a whole, whole story, which we could do an hour's podcast on. Yeah, absolutely. The following season, we used Stephen again. And he had this abstract American flag that he had done for a collection for Target. And that was a very wow. somber season because it was, you know, after 9-11. And it was like quieter shows, smaller shows, much more intimate. But yeah. we had the flag and we had Bloomberg became our mayor. And, um, you know, we had a big press conference on the steps of the of the tents, you know, cutting the ribbon. And, oh. you know, and, and Giuliani was just out. And which today's news is Giuliani was just barred from practicing law in New York. Hmm. How about that? Hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, just uh, rewinding back just a tad, um, when you were at IMG, you did travel to India and you started working with, was it Lakme Fashion Week? Uh, how did that occur? And, and sort of like, you, honestly, you just seemed transformed when you came back to the office. There was just like this, like like you were enlightened and you you just had all of this inspiration. And and you know, even Ian was just like, oh, the stories, your your assistant at the time. What like what happened there? What happened there? And what is your like what is your connection to India? Like what what, what I don't that know, but I feel like I have a soul that's in India. Hmm. You know, it's like a second family there, but um, when I, when IMG bought us in, in 2000, uh, you know, it was, it, it was an interesting time and, you know, and they bought us to also, they didn't want to just have New York fashion week because there was a lot of staff and a lot of money, um, allocated to doing New York. So we created LA shows and LA fashion week and the Miami swim shows and, all of those things were to, you know, kind of amortize all of our staff and, and, and everybody and to add more events. And, and then internationally, people were copying what we were doing. So there was a Simon Locke in Australia would come to New York and he copied everything we were doing and looked at it and created, you know, Australian Fashion Week. And, yes. and India, um, Ravi Krishnan was a guy who was the head of IMG Asia out of India and they sent some people and producers and they saw what we did and they kind of went back to create one and that summer was the first summer July 4th that they kind of signed the contract for us to be bought and the very first trip that I learned that I would be making was to Mumbai and I was I was sick as a dog. I had diverticulitis, which oh, no. was a painful, you know, intestinal disease where they said, well, you can only eat clear food, you know, things you could see through. Wow. And, and I said, but I'm supposed to go to India. And my doctor said, you know, I'd rather you go to India than England because they have better doctors. And wow. I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> so anyway, I went to India that summer and it was the begin. It was like their first fashion week that they tried to do on their own, and I walked. You arrive after you know God knows how many hours flight, 
you know, 14 hours or something, 13 hours. And you arrive in the like one, two in the morning. And I was driven to the Taj Mahal um, Palace Hotel, which is right on the water at the Gateway of India. And, you know, you walk in in the middle of the night and the place is just hopping. It's like Grand Central Station. Wow. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah. And then I was greeted by people and then met them all in the morning and got the tour of the venues that they were doing in the hotel, you know, and then started to add my two cents about how to make this work better and how to make that work better. And, um, you know, and met the designers that, that afternoon. They meet all the VIPs and then there was a big, dinner to meet everybody and I just fell in love with them all they were fabulous I fell in love with the clothing you know there were some people still doing very traditional Indian and you know everybody would have a sari or something in the shows but but many of them were doing very westernized clothing but the Indian sensibility is just it's extraordinary I mean the colors the vibrancy the materials the 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 way that they would work with textiles, the embellishments and embroideries, you know, I mean, everybody in America, all the major designers get all that work done in India, you know, every yeah. one of them, they don't, nobody in America can do that work. And so that was all there. And I just was my, my eyes just were like wide open. And, and, you know, then there was a smell in the air when you get off the airplane still to this day that like, I'm an Indian. <laughs> you, you know, you drive by all the slums and all the people begging on the streets, and yet you drive by, and there were people who lived better than I've seen people live anywhere in the world in India. There's more, yeah, millionaires, billion. Um, but the clothing was phenomenal. I mean, this top I'm wearing is from a designer in India, you know, and um, and then the jewelry. You know, you'd sit next to people at a show, and you'd look at their hands and. The diamonds were like, you know, oh. two inches long. And, you know, I'd say to somebody that I knew, is that really real? Go, yep, it really yep. is. <laughs> I mean, and the earrings, all those chandelier earrings and, you know, the, the embellishments and the jewelry is mind-boggling. So, wow. I mean, I just fell in love with India from the first trip on. And then I would be going, you know, once or twice a year for the next 10 years. Wow. And then I joined in. Indian uh, Diamond Company on their board when I left IMG. So I've made, I don't know, over 60, 70 trips to India. And, Amazing. you know, I'd go to some shops and, hi, Fern, welcome back. Hi. <laughs> and some restaurants. And, you know, I'd send people to go, I know, I know, we're giving you Fern's prices. You know? <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. I love it. So, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, uh, you you do this amazing conversation series with 92 or 92nd Y. And I mean, you've interviewed almost every major fashion icon there is throughout the country. Um, you know, from Calvin Klein, Norma Kamali, Iman, I mean, the list goes on. But what would you say is the most, uh, one of the most transformative lessons that you've learned so far from these conversations? I know that you get so much information, you hear so much storytelling. And quite frankly, I rewatched your interview with Bill Cunningham. And I, I, I mean, I was just bawling my eyes out earlier today because it was yeah. just so beautiful. But I'm curious, like, what, what is one of the most, like, transformative lessons you learned from the series? Well, that whole series, I'm, I'm as proud of that series as I am of the tents in Bryant Park because it really is, and it's, it, it's historic, and it's some of these people are the, 
the most comprehensive interviews of their lives and careers. Many of these people, you've never heard them speak before or reveal the kinds of things they reveal. There's a real comfort factor with me and them on the stage. People always say it's like you're in somebody's living room watching Fern and her friend have a conversation. So there's a trust factor. And I, at this point, I've done about maybe it's, I think it's almost over 50 interviews. So, you know, the first 19, which you mentioned some of those designers, Norma, Calvin, Donna, Betsy, Diane von Furstenberg, Tom, Tom Ford, yeah. Mark Jacobs, <laughs> Michael Kors, Bruce Weber, Polly Mellon, Mark Jacobs, Oscar, Vera, Isaac, you know, the first 19 are in a book called Fashion Lives. I fashion, love it. I fashion, have it. Or Fashion Lives, however you yeah. want to say it, that Rizzoli published. And now... Now we're working on the second edition, which will be published in February 2022. And it's going to be launched with Nordstrom's. Oh, very, I love very it. excited about that. And that book is going to include people like uh, Valentino and Victoria Beckham, Bob Mackey, um, the Missonis, Mark, um, Angela and Rosita, wow. Dan Herman, uh, Zandra Rhodes, the British designer, Tim Gunn, Billy Porter. Beth Ann Hardison, Christian Siriano, Leonard Lauder, Iris Apple, and an interview with me. So we turned the tables and Bevy Smith interviewed me. Oh, that is going to be phenomenal. Oh, my goodness. That book's going to be great. But to your question of what I, I learned or the takeaway from all of these, I mean, is the kind of passion and perseverance and the ability for each of these people to have a second act sometimes. Mm. I mean, many times you listen to them and they went bankrupt once. They went bankrupt three times. You know, how did you get the stamina and the chutzpah um, to keep going? Yeah. You know, and they did. You know, I mean, short of maybe Valentino, I mean, everybody that I've interviewed didn't grow up with a silver spoon in their mouth, you know, or have a family bit. Well, and he started the businesses. So I, I take that back a little bit. But, you know, everybody started with nothing. Yeah. And, I, and that's the stories I asked. And how did you, how did you create this business? How did, what did you do first? What did you do second? How much money did you need? Who did you call when you got your first order? You know, what, yeah. I mean, there's just so much like that that I'm interested in. So I think it's just, it's learning the life lessons from all of them of how they did it, you know. Many of them were entrepreneurs in their basements making clothes. Some of them were, you know, half of them started dressing Barbie dolls and, mm. you know, the rest had, you know, a little, like a lemonade stand on the street, you know, people yeah. who knew how to make money. Mm. You know, Oscar was trying to sell, um, you know, his vegetables from the garden that his mother let him have. Oh. He was trying to do something and make a buck, you know? Wow. So, I mean, they're all remarkable stories and, you know, I'm glad you acknowledged Bill Cunningham's because that was epic. Oh, so transformative for me, definitely. And I think it's great that you are having conversations with these folks because, you know, it really captures, you know, their legacies because we don't know how long we have here on earth. And to be able to capture that is truly a gift. So thank you for doing that. Um so what, uh, it, New York Fashion Week is right around the corner. So what are 
you looking forward to the most now that so many designers are coming back home? It's like a family reunion. <laughs> Everyone's coming back. Is there a show you're looking forward to? Well, September shows are always like a family reunion, like everybody coming back from, for school. You yeah, know, after it's summer true. Break and it's always like, oh, hi, what did you do? Did... But this one, I think, is going to be especially poignant because of a year and a half of COVID and people not really being in big public gatherings and, uh, you know, in a year of kind of artsy fartsy films and, you know, virtual presentations and, you know, people, you know, doing everything like we are on Zoom. I know. So, um, <laughs> so I think it's going to be interesting. There's nobody in particular that I'm looking forward to. You know, I, I, I haven't seen the calendar yet. I know. Where is that calendar? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to go to everything anymore. I don't want to go back to that kind of pace. You know, yeah. after the year and a half of COVID, there's been a nice kind of chill factor. And I'm afraid that New York Fashion Week is going to be a little bit too crazy and too much going on. And I'm, I'm still a little gun shy a little bit. Yeah. You know? and, and, you know, and as uh, everybody knows, the Met Gala, is rescheduled to be that week, which I think is a problem only because all these poor designers really need to do their collections and they're being taken off their game by having to do dress all these VIP celebrities for the red carpet. But, you know, I guess it's all adding to the, you know, New York is back. We're back. (laughs) You know, welcome back. You know, and hopefully people will be heading back to, their offices, you know, maybe on yeah. new, new timetables. I mean, the restaurants are packed. You can't get reservations in New York. Nope. Any, even with nope. the outdoor cafes, which are two and three times the size of the indoor spaces. Crazy. I think that's the best thing that came out of COVID, if you ask me. Yeah. But, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone's like, ooh, what am I going to wear now? Now that I can, like, go outside. <laughs> uh, nobody, yeah, nobody's jumped up for a year and a half. And everybody's yeah. in their sweats and their tie-dye t-shirts and you know and slippers and sneakers and I'm, I'm afraid my feet won't fit into really good shape. And, you know and, and and it is true people you know we need to get people back out in the stores and to shop yes. you know and you know not do everything online you know but really the stores have to create engaging opportunities for people to come in and shop you yeah know, we need to support the industry so Absolutely. This Fashion Week will do that and will remind everybody of the kind of talent and, you know, and, and the desire to wear something new and feel fabulous in it. Yes. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on the future of Fashion Week? You know, it seemed like right before the pandemic, people were like, oh, you know, it's becoming more commercial. And then you have the bloggers and the influencers and, you know, digital. And then the pandemic happened and people were like, oh, New York Fashion Week is over, which I feel like they say like at least once every five years. Yeah, I mean, I, no, they've said it like once every other year. I mean, I've since we started it, it's like, yeah. no, this isn't going to work. I'm pulling out. And why is this happening? And, you know, fashion shows will always be around. It's the way, it's the best way to see clothing and to see a designer's vision and, you know, see it on beautiful men and women, you know, walking down a runway. So, you know, and it's the best way to get the pictures. It's the best way. And now with social media, you know, everybody's Instagramming everything and everybody's a critic and a jury and a judge. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's changed a lot, you know. Mm. Now everybody's sending out this stuff and you don't know who to, you know, like, 
what do they know about fashion? Why are they making these judgments? You know, but that's what it is. Well, it's a democratic society. Everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't, IMG is still organizing them at Spring Studios. So there's still a, a venue. Yeah. And I know that they have a lot of people on their, on their list that will be doing runway or presentations or still lives or whatever they're doing. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be busy and Citadel will hopefully be back there, you know, yeah. our security guys, minus oh, Tom Ty. Carney, minus Tom Carney, who died of COVID yeah, last yeah. year. Oh. And um, it'll, it'll be interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll wait yeah. and see. I don't want to, you know, make any predictions. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, and rest in peace, Tom. He was just so amazing. It was just so fun to work with him yeah. each season. I just, I can't believe, you know, he's know. gone. Um, but pivoting to what is the secret behind your success and longevity in the industry? Not everyone stays, you know, not everyone, you know, continues to have this level of influence, but you do, Fern. What is the secret? I don't know. Somebody's going to have to tell me what it is. I mean, I'm, I don't take a special pill every day or anything. <laughs> I mean, I luckily have, have good skin from my mother, you know, yes. so, um, so that works. And, and know, I love the I, hair too. I love the and, hair. And I've always had good hair, you know, a lot of hair, but I think that, you know, the longevity is, is the interest and the curiosity, you know, to always see like what somebody is doing or, you know, getting excited when you meet a young designer and you see the potential. I mean, I've always been that kind of champion. You know, I spent the last, you know, 15 years also traveling to all the regional fashion weeks, you know, when nobody gave them the time of day, you know, yeah. we'd, we'd laugh about it. I was going to Charleston for five, six years in a row and going wow. to Austin and going to um, Nashville Fashion Week and Omaha Fashion Week and San Antonio Fashion Week and you know, and just supporting these people, giving them encouragement, Philly Fashion Week, wow. meeting the designers, talking about what they're doing, giving them advice, you know, and it was really important. Now, now the CFDA has created a program for these regional fashion weeks, and my former assistant is involved with that. So, um, you know, I think it's, an, uh, I mean, like I said, my, my longevity is my, my interest and, you know, I mean, one day I'll say, I don't give a damn, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but I don't see it. It's, it's, it's going to be forever. I hope, I hope you continue to have these conversations and, you know, keep us, you know, informed on your inspirations. I mean, I think that's the beauty of the folks who really embrace what fashion. Well, is. everybody's got to follow me on at front malice on my Instagram and they'll yes. see what's going on. She has the best Instagram, you guys. You know, we're trying to update the website a little bit. It's cute. I checked it out. And, you know, and Tyler's putting on all the new stories or press things or everything we're doing. So we'll, you know, when this comes out, we'll post and remind people to how to tune in and listen to it. You know, there's always something going on. And, and, you know, and that's, that's, you know, that's it. You know, I, I've got my family that I adore, you know, my, my sister and my nieces that keep me going and their little kids. Oh, so beautiful. Well, I have to ask you, we're coming to the end. I always ask my guests, 
What is one of your favorite fashion moments of all time? It can be personal, professional. It can be both. You know, we've heard stories about, you know, you know, Easter outfits from when they were, you know, five or six. I mean, there's so many different things. So is there one that sort of stands out for you? Like a magical moment? God, that's a tough one. I mean, because I've probably seen more fashion shows than everybody you've interviewed and together times 10. <laughs> you know, and, um, and I've seen everything from the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, <laughs> I mean, and there have been so many moments at those tents and, you know, points in between. Uh, but you know what, what, you know, one of the things that always rises to the surface for me was uh, the, the final show that Bill Blass had as a designer. Uh, Bill Blass was, you know, the American designer and a class act and dressed his socialites and his beautiful women. And and he announced he was retiring, you know, much to the chagrin of the industry. And, and so his show was in the tents in the big venue. And it was about, I think it was like 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And it happened during Hurricane Floyd, wow. which was a horrible hurricane in New York. We had the Office of um, Emergency Events and all that, building departments, everybody on site, because we had tents in the middle of a park in a yeah. horrible hurricane. You know, wow. and they nothing of no matter how well you do them, you you know, you know, where the tents meet another tent in yep. Florida, there's water pouring in and leaking yep. everywhere. And, you know, we had vacuum cleaners trying to vacuum up the water everywhere and people like wow. rooms to move it out in channels and and, you know, Women's Wear Daily had written an article, and I'll never forget this, said, well, Floyd flattened Fern's tents. Oh. And, you know, it was a crazy season, and Bill was having wow. to show them. And it was, you know, the, the guests were arriving by their cars and vehicles as best they could, coming up the steps on uh, 6th Avenue and 41st Street. And they were, you know, umbrellas were flying. Things couldn't hold down. Everybody was soaking wet. And everybody got in the venue and, um, you know, and we waited and waited to give people more time to get there because of the weather and the, how, how horrible it was. And I remember being back then and you could see when the lights, the spotlights were on the runway, every drop of water that you would come down was like illuminated. It was really crazy. And um, Bill was backstage smoking. He's always smoking. And he had all his girls dressed. They were, looked extraordinary. Kevin Cryer, who's passed away, was producing the show. And he had all this, like, um, Gershwin and um, Aaron Copeland and um, all this American music. It was so American. Beautiful soundtrack. And But before the show started, I mean, it was running really late. And I remember being in a slicker in the control booth and making an announcement to everybody to please, you know, hang in there we're waiting for a few more people to come because of the weather and you know and we'll do a proper send-off to mr blast and you know and i was backstage talking to him and he said fern you know it's fine i've done the collection i finished it i'm proud of it we don't have to do a show you know it'll be available in the show i'm like let's just cancel this because this is getting really scary and dangerous it was really dangerous scary out and i said we're not letting you go that way you have to have a show you know and sure enough you know the appropriate time, you know, the proceeding opened, the lights went on and the red, white, and blue in the back and 
those girls sashayed up and down the runway to this gorgeous music. And, you know, at the end, Bill came out and there wasn't a dry eye in the house, Uh, you know, and that wasn't uh, wet from the hurricanes and the rain. It was just, it was such a beautiful, I mean, I'll never forget that show. I mean, that really, you know, was a moment for me. Wow. Wow. Well, thank you, Fern. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for just contributing so much to fashion and and American fashion designers and really designers around the world. So obviously you're always welcome to come back, but thank you. That's all for a fashion moment, you guys. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Kristen. Good luck to you. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of a fashion moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.